Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. You know, when my kids were little, we used to uh, watch as a family together America's Funniest Videos. I thought they liked it. I mean, they laughed at all the right times. They seemed to like it. But recently, my kids, of course, are growing up, and we'll have a family dinner. My oldest will bring his wife. My middle will bring his fiancée. My youngest will drive in from who knows where she's been. And I'll turn it on because they're all there, and they've all confessed to me they hate the show. They can't stand it. They don't like it. But I don't care. I left it on anyway. And then I caught myself this week watching it when no one was there. So I guess it's me that likes the show. But I I saw the show this week and I saw a, a clip of an ostrich. And, and I, I guess as a city boy, it just struck me as I looked at this video how bizarre this animal is. It was one of those drive-through zoo things, which make no sense to me to start with. And this gigantic, I mean, these birds are huge. They tower over the cars. And then their long neck comes in and their head, it's just like a, it's like a, it's a horror movie. And it's grabbing things, sunglasses and cell phones and just all kinds of weird things happen. But it must have been the camera angle. But I just sat there and I pondered for a minute what a strange, bizarre animal this is. Now, I don't know much about the ostrich other than the old adage that's become a part of our vocabulary about people sticking their head in the sand. Because, of course, that's what they're known for. I actually went online and looked at some pictures of the ostrich sticking his head in the sand. Now, it may not be, as I read some articles, for the reasons that we might think, but it's an apt picture, a, a real telling, dramatic picture of someone trying to hide themselves from reality, shielding themselves from reality, which is all comical and ridiculous because, of course, this giant body is there exposed on the landscape, but you have the head under the sand as though this is some kind of hiding from reality when, in fact, it's not. Now, I understand that adage, and I recognize the parallel to how I often feel, and I assume you do too, when you've just had enough of this world. Right? You've had enough of the things in this world, the crime, the violence, the dishonesty, the, the oppression, the injustice of things that we see around us all the time. And we want to shield ourselves from all that because the world just gets to be too much. The mess of this world, it's infuriating, it's overwhelming, it's maddening, it makes us angry, and sometimes we just want to shut it off. Now, I'm not against you turning off your news feed from time to time. But I want to tell you this morning, as a pastor and a preacher of God's word, that you cannot stick your head in the sand, as some preachers might even advocate. And I've heard them advocate it. Just need to stop all the negative influences. Just get all that out of your lives. Shouldn't be reading the news. Shouldn't be reading about crime. Listen, if you're going to minister in the real world, if you're going to love people and care for people who live in this world, this is going to intersect at some point with people that you care about and love, not to mention your own life. Which, by the way, I'd like you to not mention your own life this morning when it comes to this issue because the passage I want you to look at, which is helpful for us in understanding how we deal with this crime-infested, violent, terrible world that we live in. It's really filled with a lot of stuff that is disheartening and sometimes so overwhelming and angering, we don't know what to do with it but to shut it out. I want to take this passage that is there for us in a way that presents to us a real solution to knowing what it is to get frustrated with the world we live in and yet not lose our hope, not lose the ability to rejoice always, as Paul said in in Philippians 4. And again, I say rejoice. How do we maintain hope and joy in a world that's so messed up if I'm not supposed to just stick my head in the sand and block it all out? Well, Psalm 10 has the answer, and it's a very important answer, and we all need it. And I want you, as I just said, to see it not for yourself, 
Matter of fact, that's the key as I'm about to read these 18 verses for you. The key is not seeing this as when injustice strikes your life. This is not a passage that's going to help you understand what it's like to respond when you feel like things have not been equitable in your life or you've been the victim of some kind of oppression or injustice. That's not what I want you to think. There are other verses for that. There are other psalms for that. We're going to have other psalms in our series that are going to be about that. But this one is really, I like to now call it the newsfeed psalm. Because when you see our world and you get frustrated and you feel like it's just overwhelming and I just can't stand this world anymore, this is the psalm for you. 13 verses explain the problem in the generation of the psalmist that looks a lot like, in exposing the relevancy of the word of God, it looks a lot like the world we woke up to this morning. And if you don't stick your head in the sand, you really look at the things that we deal with, the people that you know, the people that you love, the people that live in our neighborhoods, in our county, in our state, in our country, the things that we go through in this world. If you know what's happening all around us, you got to feel like this sometimes. Let me read it for you. I'll read all 18 verses from the English Standard Version. Let me start in verse number one when it says, why, O Lord, why Yahweh, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And who hasn't had that thought before? God, it's terrible here. Where are you? Why? Well, because in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. They're taking advantage of people that have no defenses. Now, here's the prayer of a man who's frustrated at his culture. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. Now, again, he's not adding himself in the poor there. He's an observer of his culture and his generation. And he says, I want this to stop. Let the bad guys lose and let the good guys get out of trouble. That's what I want to see. But it's not that way in this world. Verse 3, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the greedy one for gain, he curses and renounces the Lord. You know, you add that theological level to it and it's going to get your blood pressure up. I hope it does at least. You're going to say people are out there really, I mean, just defying God. They think there's no accountability. They think God doesn't even care. As a matter of fact, They say, in the pride of his face, the wicked do not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. I mean, they're not just atheists, as we talked about last week. They're anti-theists, and they continue sometimes to say, we don't care about not just morality and ethics. We don't really care about getting ahead on the backs and heads of other people. Now, I know sometimes this is relegated to the crime blotters of our newspapers and our news feeds, but we've got to realize that this is a world of people that are boasting in their evil, and so often... We're struck with the same kind of attitude that the psalmist had, and that is, God, where are you? Because in verse 5, it gets even worse. They prosper, it seems, all the time. His ways prosper all the time. And your judgments, oh, they're way out there somewhere, up in heaven. They're out of sight. As for the foes of this person, this wicked person, he puffs at them. It's just a prideful kind of, it doesn't matter. I'm dominant. I'm going to oppress. I'm going to do what I want. He says in his heart, hey, I'm the winner. I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. I'm going to survive. I'm going to prevail. I'm going to do what I want. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. And under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Now, this is about criminals here. Look at verses 8 and 9. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding place, he murders the innocent. This is the newsfeed song, right? It's It's about homicide. It's about people attacking people. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. They're stalking their victims. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. Verse 10, the helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. And he says in his heart, God is forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. Well, it's interesting. In verse 4, he's a very brazened 
kind of bloviating atheist, but now you recognize, as we said last time, people suppress the truth and unrighteousness, even if he can't convince himself there is no God, at least he thinks, well, God's not going to hold me to account. God's not going to see it. God's not going to in any way hold me accountable. But the psalmist says in verse 12, arise, Yahweh, arise, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Why do they think there's no accountability? Well, because they're getting away with it, because they're prospering, because they're winning, because the bad guys are winning and the good guys are losing. But here's the corrective in verse 14. Here's the attitude that's starting to shift in the mind of the psalmist. But you do see, you do see it. For you note mischief and vexation from the petty crimes to the homicidal maniacs. Why do you see that? That you may take it into your hands. You see it, you take note, because you're going to hold them accountable. To the helpless, he says, to you, the helpless commits himself. I mean, they're trusting in you. Sometimes they reach out, certainly the victims, and say, God, God. And you have been the helper of the fatherless. Those who can't defend themselves, you've been their helper. Now, here's a very vivid prayer. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. We want them to stop. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. We don't want any more of this wickedness. We don't want any more of the evildoers. Yahweh is king forever and ever. He's sovereign. He's in charge. And the nations, these nations, if they're going to rebel, if they're going to be filled with anarchy, if they're going to be filled with crime and violence, they're going to perish from the land. Now, that's the hope and the promise of God. And then he ends with this, verses 17 and 18. Oh, Yahweh, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their hearts. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed. So that the man of the earth, this guy who thinks he's so big, but he's just a mortal man, may strike terror no more. Well, we live in a day where a lot of folks are striking terror in people's hearts. And you may be safely ensconced behind some gated community and a nicely secured and alarmed house. But you recognize, don't you, if you just open up your news feed, you see we live in a world that's filled with crime and violence. And you cannot stick your head in the sand. We live in that kind of world. But I don't want that kind of frustration To in any way block out the ability that we should have as Christians walking with Christ to rejoice, to be hopeful, and to be glad. Well, how do we do that? If you're telling us to get our head out of the sand and see the problems in this world. Well, that's the whole point of this psalm. I mean, that's really what we ought to do. We ought to do both. And I want to start with something that's quite negative, it seems. And you may have come to church to feel better about things. And you might be saying, well, this sermon isn't helping. Well, don't walk out quite yet. Even though the first point, it may seem to you not what you signed up for when you came to church today, I want to tell you, just glancing through those first 13 verses again, here is a guy taking note of his culture, his generation that's filled with crime and murderers and and thugs and, and, and people that are out there to do criminal activity and violence and aggravated assault in the world they live in. We got the same thing, and he's frustrated about it. He is. Here's a biblical word for it. He is indignant, and I think if you want to be godly, you ought to do the same thing. Really? I think you ought to do the same thing. Number one on your outline, you ought to, number one, be indignant about injustice. Jot that down. Be indignant about injustice. Injustice. We have a God that declares that he himself is perfect. All his ways are just. He's a God of faithfulness without iniquity. Just and upright is he. That God, guess what? When he sees iniquity and oppression, you may think that he doesn't care because he doesn't do anything about it immediately. And you're crying out to God, where are you? Why do you stand far off? But the God of the Bible, trust me, he does not feel good about it. As a matter of fact, here's a good word about for you. He feels indignant about it. That's a great word. There's a righteous, just anger over the injustice, the crime, the violence, and the oppression in our world. God feels that way. Matter of fact, you want to be godly, you ought to feel that way. 
Matter of fact, one of my favorite verses in this regard to remember, and it's a great mnemonic as it relates to this verse, because I think about it when I pass a 7-Eleven, where, by the way, there's a lot of crime. As a matter of fact, I thought to get in the mindset of what I need to have in my heart when I stepped up to preach, this week I was watching, I know this is strange, message prep, but videotapes of violent crimes in our community, and as I looked at these, man, it seems like half of them took place at the 7-Eleven. But, so I thought to myself, here's a good mnemonic for you, memorize Psalm 7-11. Because in Psalm 711, when you think about it, next time you're getting your slurpee, walking past that thing that measures the height of the criminals as they leave the, the place, I'm reminded, here's what God thinks about the crime that takes place not only at 711, but everywhere else, it seems, in our culture. There's a lot of violence, a lot of crime, a lot of thieves, a lot of thugs. Here's what the Bible says. It says the Lord is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. God is a righteous judge. A God who feels indignation every day. You come to church, I hope, say, I'd like to leave church, get in my car, leave the parking lot more godly than when I came to church. That would be great, sitting under the preaching of God's word. If you want to be more godly, if you haven't felt indignation every day, perhaps you're not as godly as you need to be. Maybe I can help you in that regard. You came to feel better, and I'm saying, hey, you should be angry a little bit more often. What? Here's an interesting study. Study the theme of anger in the Bible. You think, anger, I want to get rid of that. No, you're right. There's a lot of expressions of anger you should be completely rid of in your life. And the trick is to be angry, as the Bible says in Ephesians, and yet not sin. That's the trick. Angry and not sin. Because the Bible, here's the study, every time you see anger in the Bible, half the times the topic shows up, it's ascribed to God. And you think, wow, really? Yeah, it's ascribed to God. God is a God who describes himself as angry indignant, justifiably angry at sin. And that is something that if I want to be more godly, maybe I ought to feel what he feels. Particularly if I recognize and understand that the perfect model of humanity, Jesus Christ, did the same thing. As I often say, some people think the God of the Old Testament is angry. He took a nap in the intertestamental period. He's a lot more cheery in the New Testament. That's not true. Read the book of Revelation, by the way, if you want to put that myth to rest. The whole book is about an angry God. Can't get past chapter 5 without them saying, the wrath of God and of the Lamb have come. God is a God who certainly is angry at sin. He's angry at injustice. And you need to recognize that in the Bible, in the New Testament, Jesus, the perfect picture of humanity, gets indignant as well. Let me quote a passage for you. It's found in Mark chapter 10. Now, I know as I give you the context, you're going to not picture it the way that it actually happened because you're going to picture it the way they put on lithographs and paintings in the Christian bookstores and the gilded frames. You're going to see this as a meme on somebody's Twitter account that has butterflies and kittens on their site, on their banner. But listen, I'll prove it to you. Here, I'll give you the key, most memorable line from Mark 10. Here it is. You ready? Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Did I say that about as disgustingly feminine as I could possibly say that? Let the little children come to me. That, that is not how Jesus said that. Let me read the line just before it. And Jesus was indignant and said, let the little children come to me. <laughs> That's not how Jesus said that. Jesus was angry. And this was a small injustice. I mean, really relatively small injustice. He saw people coming with their children and the apostles were going, no, 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 don't disturb the rabbi. And he's saying, let those kids come. Let them come to me. I'm illustrating the whole concept of the kingdom by the fact that children are children who are dependent and have faith. Bring those kids. Now, I don't know if it was, let the little children come to me. <laughs> but he wasn't happy when he said it. Jesus was indignant 
What does that mean? Well, he saw things happening that shouldn't happen. In this case, it was Peter and Thomas and the rest going, nah, 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 and he gets mad. Just study that. Jesus getting angry. God getting angry. They get indignant at the right things. The problem with our anger is we're often getting indignant about the wrong things. The thing I'm being very clear, giving you license to be indignant at, is the injustice in our world. I don't even want you to think about the inequities and injustice that are foisted upon you. I want you to think just about the injustice and and inequities that we see all around us. Read your news feed and be ready to get indignant. And you ought to be. Because you're sharing in the character of God at that point. I know some people say, I don't want to feel that way. So you don't even try to connect with anything that's happening in our culture. You don't like to listen to talk radio. They're all angry. You don't like to watch the news. It's all about violence. It's all bad news. I just want good news and butterflies and kittens. Well, Jesus doesn't think that way. God, the omniscient God, doesn't think that way. Here it is, Psalm 711. Our God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. I don't want you to be someone who's getting angry and doing sinful things. But I want you to connect with the heart of God, a God who says, injustice makes me justifiably mad. The combination here, the descriptive in Psalm 119.53 is always helpful for me. It's not just indignation like some kind of scholarly bent brow. Here it is for you. Psalm 119 verse 53. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked, those who forsake your law. There's a good description of someone who looks at their news feed and says, this makes me really mad. Hot indignation. Now, I'm not just saying it's a kind of anger that just wants to take my shoe off and throw it at the TV when I see the news, although I feel that way. It's seeing these things and having a compassion for those who are oppressed. Matter of fact, one of the things I did first thing when I studied this passage this week is I broke it into a chart and I put on the chart a list of all the bad guys and how they were described and the good guys and how they were described. And the good guys in this passage are always the victims. And in the right-hand column, I had the poor, the innocent, the helpless. The Hebrew word is the the people who are being sad because they're being victimized. The poor, again, it's repeated. And then a different Hebrew word that's translated helpless in our passage in verse 10, the, the cast down, their heads are down. And then it ends with a description of the the good guys, if you will, the victims being afflicted. Now, the bad guys, they're arrogant, they're boasting, they're greedy, they're cursing, they're renouncing, they're prospering, they're puffing at their foes, they're saying, I'm never going to be moved, they're cursing, deceitful, oppression, mischief, iniquity, ambushing, murder, stealthily watching, lurking, crushing, sinking, falling, making the the victims fall, saying God's not going to see They renounce God. The good guys and the bad guys. The good guys aren't sitting there fighting with armor on horseback. They're being victimized. And that is a heart that just doesn't get angry. It has compassion for the victim. As a matter of fact, the first time you see God show a real kind of expressive emotion in the Bible to show that side of us that we're made in the image of him, we have that capacity to feel, would be in Genesis chapter 6 when he's about to flood the world. Now that's an angry act, you would agree, to destroy the world. That's an act of God's justifiable, articulated, clearly measured anger at the world. But it starts with this in Genesis chapter 6 when it says about God, he saw the wickedness of mankind, it was so great in the earth, their intention of their heart was evil only continually, and it says the Lord was grieved to his heart. I want my anger, my indignation to be tempered by the fact that I feel bad for the victims. You can't watch YouTube and watch crime videos about people being mugged at the 7-Eleven or being murdered in a back alley or, 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 you know, having their purses snatched or being beat up by somebody at some event and not say, I feel bad for those people. I mean, I feel really, really bad. I grieve over that. 
Matter of fact, here's a sign of your godliness. Jot it down. You can look it up later. Ezekiel chapter 9. In Ezekiel chapter 9, the society in Jerusalem in the 6th century BC was so bad. There was crime. There was violence. There was all kinds of rapes taking place, aggravated assaults, larceny, burglary. All that was going on. And here's what God says. I want to not destroy everyone in Jerusalem. I'm going to save those who are righteous. And I don't want them to fall under the same kind of condemnation as those who are guilty. But he doesn't say in this scene, hey, angels, go out and mark for me, because that's the image that's used. Go out and mark for me the people that do good things. Go out and mark for me the people that are righteous and stand up for what's right. The people that are distinguished as designated for being saved from Nebuchadnezzar's army are designated this way. Go out, he says. This is Ezekiel 9.4. He says, and put a mark on those who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in this city. Sigh and groan. You stick your head in the sand, you're never going to qualify for that. I don't want you to be characterized by sighing and groaning. I just want it to punctuate your daily experience because it punctuates God's daily experience because I would like to have the same response to injustice that God has. Let's stop trying to insulate ourselves from all of that and recognize when you see things going on to which other people become victims and oppressed, when you see those that are taken advantage of, you need to feel that. You need to feel that as a groaning and a sighing and then it should make you indignant So you can go out and take vengeance into your own hand? No. Be a vigilante? I'm not saying that. I'm saying it just starts with identifying with a God who really, really is indignant over injustice. Then I need you to do what the passage teaches us to do in verses 14 through 16. Look at it with me. Psalm 10, verses 14 through 16. But you do see. I know they sit there in verse 13 and think, no one's going to call me to account. No, God, you do see. For you note mischief and vexation, no matter how easy, how small, how big it is, that you may take it into your hands. I love the verb to note. It's a great verb because I always picture it literally as someone standing there with a yellow tablet and a pen in his hand taking note of everything that happens. I know it seems like he's passive. I know that's how the psalm starts. God, where are you? You're standing far off like you're watching football or something. That's not what's happening. God is taking note on everything that takes place. Here's a great proverb for you. Proverbs 15, 3. I hope you think this often. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. You need to know this, that he does that so that he can take the matter into his hands. He's going to take the matter into his hands. Now, the helpless are committing himself to the Lord. Many of them are. And he becomes the helper of the fatherless, not as soon as they may want. Here's the prayer. Break the arm of the wicked. I want that to stop, which may be a very literal phrase for you to think through. But the arm is always a picture in Scripture of strength. Not that someone couldn't use a good arm breaking in the middle of their mugging. But I'm just saying this. The idea is I don't want them to be powerful to do this. I want them to have their their power and their, their authority and their dominance to be broken. Call his wickedness into account till you find none. The Lord, Yahweh, is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. God will call them to account. Number two in your outline, let's put it down this way. Be certain about God's judgment. And you can start with the fact that God sees everything. And God takes note of everything. And God will one day settle the score. Every valley filled in. Every mountain made low. Every crooked path straight. Every rough place plain. That's how Isaiah gave us the prophecy. And the Bible says he's not slow in keeping his promise. He's going to straighten this all out. If he seems passive, he's not passive. He's taking notes. He's preparing. 
He prepares, first of all, by watching. Did you get your Ring doorbell yet? Some of you got that already? When Amazon took over the Ring doorbell brand, they put out some reports. There was a report up here in L.A. where they took one neighborhood, installed that in every home, and they found out that it reduced crime, at least is how it was reported, by 55% in that neighborhood just because people recognize there's, there's crime right going on here. I'm going to be caught on the videotape. All this statement of crime in, in Psalm 10 may be theoretical until it's someone you love. I remember that happened. One of my colleagues got ripped off. One of our pastors here on staff had their home invaded and all their stuff ransacked and all their drawers emptied out, all their valuables taken, stolen. And he just lives up the street. And so I got the call that his house had been ripped off. And so, of course, I go over there and I just that sense of violation and my indignation about all that. Well, the first thing this pastor did, as you might imagine, he went out and got cameras installed the next day all around his house. For which I thought, I'm glad I have cameras around my house. And so I happened to go back the days that this all happened and the days preceding and went through my cameras to look at what was on the, the tape of the cameras. And sure enough, guess what I caught just the day before his house gets ripped off? People coming to my house, lurking around my house, going through the gates along the side of my house, looking in my windows. And I thought, there you go. Until, of course, the criminal, I'm assuming, is just not a nosy retailer of some kind, some vendor. He looks up and sees one of my cameras perched up and ducks his head down with his clipboard and, and leaves. And I think to myself, that concept of God watching is helpful Not just for me where I can say, as I did, and sent that over to the sheriff's department as they investigated what went on at at the pastor's house up the street. But I thought it's not just looking at a a grainy picture on an iPhone or an iPad. It's really having God having everything in high def, not just the visual of people's crimes, but every intention, every motive of their heart. God takes note of it all. He sees it all. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. You feel a lot better if you do come home and you've been ripped off thinking, hey, I got the videotape. Now, it may take... Weeks, it could take months before you have that video there exposed that's been captured until you have justice done in a courtroom. And even when that happens, it's not always perfect, as you know. And you recognize this. There's always a delay, too, in God's justice. His judgment is coming, but it takes so long, and that's what gets us frustrated. That's what makes us pray. Why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? But you need to realize it is coming. And God is God who has promised that it is coming. And it will come. And you need to recognize that, that that promise is as sure as any other promise that God has ever made. Now, when you think about that, I need you to think of 2 Peter chapter 2. Could you turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2? If you know your Bibles well, and you've heard me preach on this topic before, or anybody else who knows the Bible well, they're going to say, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. And I just turned to 2 Peter chapter 2. Well, that was intentional. Even though 2 Peter chapter 3 would be a great and very appropriate passage for me to quote at at this time. Which reminds us that if God delays in his judgment, it's not because he's slow in keeping his promises. Do you remember that passage? It's because he's patient toward you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So I know this, that God is a God that in many ways, and for many of his motivations, it comes down to the fact that we want the Saul of Tarsus, who's persecuting and having people killed, become the Apostle Paul who ends up becoming an advocate for the truth, we want people to come to repentance. Our jail ministry, the stuff we do in prisons with partners, and and the stuff that's going on through our radio ministry, reaching people that are there incarcerated in prison, that's one of the main things that we take joy in, is seeing people who are caught in their transgressions come to faith in Christ and be forgiven. Jesus started the jail ministry on the cross, you remember. Looked at it, not only an incarcerated, but an executed prisoner being executed, and shares the truth with him, clearly. 
That was happening by example to where it works effectually in the heart of that criminal saying, hey, I trust you. That was there implicit in the passage because he turns to him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And we know this, that patience of God not bringing immediate justice is a sign of his grace. As Peter said, consider this, this patience of God to be salvation. Now that's great. I could turn you to that and I've already underscored it by repeating it. But I want you to start in 2 Peter 2. Because in 2 Peter chapter 2, it gets down to where we're at. And that is, are you even coming? That is, Christians, I know you're delayed, but are you sure? And he gives great examples in this passage. It's a big if-then passage. Let's start in verse number 3. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. In their greed. Now, I know the context is the false teachers. And I get that. But just like the greedy person with a letter trying to campaign for your money and ripping off the woman who's on a fixed income and he does it for his own private jet or whatever it might be, we see the con man in the pulpit. We see the con man in the marketplace. We see the criminal invading someone's house and committing larceny or grand theft auto. I recognize that principle you need to see in light of Psalm 10. We can certainly have in view in this passage. In their greed, they'll exploit you with false words or with a gun, or with their fists, or with their assault, whatever it might be. No matter what the sin is, I know this for sure, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. That's a great way to put it. It's not idle. When you sit there in your car with your car idling, it's not in gear, it's not moving, God's judgment is coming. Like we always try to underscore from Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Present tense, it's coming. The train has left the station and it's on its way. It's like here we are in the ark, trying to get people in the ark. The rain is already starting to fall. It's coming. I mean, the flood and the deluge is just around the corner. It's not like his judgment is idle, sitting there and not on the way. It's on the way. God has taken note and his judgment is coming. Their destruction is not asleep. God's taking note of everything. And then it's a bunch of if-then statements, right? It's it's a big series of if, 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 and then a final then. Look at all the ifs, verses 4 through 8. If God did not spare angels when they sinned. You want some examples of God being really tough on crime? Here it is. These angels sinned. He cast them into hell, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Apparently that's a segment of the angelic class who's not out free to roam around and do their work, he's already consigned some of them to incarceration and they're kept there till the final judgment. And here's another if. If he didn't spare the ancient world, speaking of Genesis 6, here they were sinning and he said, I'm going to destroy you. But then he took the one who was really had to be tormented, building this ark and having that one righteous man and his family receive all of the bad from that society, all the mockery, but he spared him, he preserved him. A herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Well, he did destroy the world there. So we have the angelic condemnation. We have the judgment upon the world in in the flood, verse 6. And here's another one. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, where they're raping people and assaulting people, it was a terrible society. If he reduced them to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, And if he rescued Lot, just like he rescued Noah before the flood in Genesis 6 through 9, if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed, here's our sermon, at least point one, by the sensual conduct of the wicked for that righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, which is going to be the punctuated normalcy of the Christian life right now. Well, if all those things, if, 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 God has been so faithful in bringing judgment, well, then you know this. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, whether it's the oppressed or the fatherless or the afflicted. 
and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now, chapter 3 is going to say that day of judgment sure has taken a long time, and we've quoted that often. But right here, I want to say it's coming. You need to be certain about the judgment of God. If God has made a promise, he's going to keep it as sure as the seat you're sitting on is holding up your body right now. The judgment upon the ungodly is coming. Our hope is to convert a few of those as messengers of the gospel, to see them join us in the body of the redeemed. That is our goal. But if they don't, if they're impenitent, if they're stubborn, their judgment is certain. It's not idle. It's on its way. That, in a weird, strange way, should bring us comfort that God may be seemingly passive and not stepping in to fix the problem right now, but he's certainly keeping track and judgment will come. Well, if this sounds like the worst, most depressing sermon you've heard all year, maybe we can end on a good note here. Verses 17 and 18. Oh, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. There are a lot of people hurting, but you know what? You're listening to their prayers. You will strengthen their heart. Even in the process of their praying, you strengthen them. You will incline your ear. Eventually you will. You will do it. To do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed. Oh, they may have scars. They may have lots of of stories to tell about injustice. But you're going to do justice so that the man of the earth may strike terror no more. These mere mortal men will one day be held to account. But in the process, in the meantime, you're going to strengthen the heart of those who are in the midst of all of that. Why? Because they're expressing their heart. They're giving their desires to you. That's called prayer. Which, by the way, I want to look at this whole chapter and recognize it's all prayer, is it not? The direct address to verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? And we started with, look at all the trouble in the first 13 verses. But judgment is coming, the next three verses. And then you know what? I know that you'll strengthen them as they pray. Because guess what's happened as an example in chapter 10? God has strengthened the psalmist's heart as he prayed. And you know what? God will strengthen your heart as you pray. Number three, jot it down that way. Be strengthened through prayer. You must be a man or a woman of prayer. You want to get through the stuff in this world? It's not about isolating yourself or some self-imposed ignorance about the problems in the world. It's about seeing the news reports, hearing the crime statistics, and even having people in your neighborhood be victimized. And you say this, I know judgment is coming, and I'm going to put myself on my knees and begin to pray. You strengthen us in our prayer life. You give us perspective in our prayer life. You turn us from hopelessness. And where's God in all this? Do I know God is on the throne? He's the Lord of all. He's the king forever and ever. And he's going to bring justice to all this. And I can get up from that vexation that I may feel, that indignation that'll grip my heart, that hot indignation, and start to rejoice again and have peace and be the kind of person that has that biblical optimism I talk about, that God is still on the throne and it's going to be okay. Be strengthened by prayer. Here's a tweetable verse for you to sum up everything you've heard this morning. Romans chapter 12, verse 12. One of the greatest triads of statements that would ever apply to this sermon if there was a passage to apply to this sermon in the New Testament. Here it is in a few simple words. You ready? Rejoice in hope. Now that's where I want us to end. Rejoice in hope. Now how do I do that, Paul? Because the Roman Empire was really coming down with its iron fists on the young church in Rome. Well, listen, I know... You're going to have to, here's the next phrase, be patient in tribulation. So rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Well, how do I get there? Last phrase, be constant in prayer. Is that a great verse to memorize today? That's great. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Those three things are what this is all about. The key practice, the assignment is pray, pray, pray. Commit yourself to prayer. What happens? 
Well, that allows me to do what the Bible says I can do, and that is be a realist about the problems in the world, see depravity in our culture for what it is, really get angry at the violence and oppression and injustice that I see, and yet still get up from my prayer times rejoicing in the Lord always. And if the apostle says it again to rejoice, I'm going to say I can. And how come? Because I'm going to take all the anxiety, all the frustration I feel, and instead of being anxious... I'm going to pray about everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. I'm going to let my request be made known to God. And when I do, do you know the next verse? And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You know, prayer is the most underutilized weapon in our arsenal. That is the thing that's going to help us to truly empathize with a hurting world and to recognize even in our neighborhoods when the car goes by with the lights and sirens on and I hope you stop to pray for what's going on in the situation, you realize this. It seems like the world is chaotic, like people are victims of crimes, like bad things are happening all around us. But God is on the throne. God is going to make everything right. And what I need to do is pray. And God can allow me in the midst of all that to have my heart strengthened, to know that the affliction of the oppressed will one day be relieved and I will be the the person who stands on the other side of that saying, God calmed my heart in the midst of all of that frustration. There's a statement there after that verse we quoted all the time in Philippians 4 about being anxious for nothing and praying about everything. But it ends with this in verse 9. The paragraph says, what you've learned, he tells the Philippians, and received and heard and seen in me, he said, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. That really is the inclusio. That's the end of this concept, this teaching. And that is you've got to practice what you've seen in Paul. And you know what you've seen in Paul? You've seen someone that doesn't just pray about people he can't help, but he prays about people he can help, and then he gets off of his knees and he starts to help. And he does that all the time. Matter of fact, in the words of James, the inspired words of James, let me give it to you this way. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father. Listen to this now. Talk about the afflicted of of Psalm 10. This is pure and undefiled religion before God our Father. And that is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. To care for people that are hurting. To care for those who are defenseless. To be the defense for the defenseless. To be the help for those who have been victimized. To stand up and say, I'm going to be a part of the solution. Now clearly in Psalm 10, the problem was so systemic There was a lot that the psalmist could not do, but sit here and say, God, I can't do anything. You've got to do something, and you don't seem to be doing anything. But I'll bet the psalmist, after praying this through, if he saw injustice, if he saw victimization, if he saw oppression, do you think he's going to stand idly by? I hope you're not going to drive home today from a sermon like this. If you saw some kind of oppression, some kind of injustice going on, you're not going to stop and pull your car over and help? Of course you would. That's the point. Christians need to get the perspective that God is on the throne and he will judge. But in the meantime, we are advocates. We are those who bring comfort to the afflicted. The Apostle Paul, I quote it all the time in 2 Corinthians 7. It says, the God who comforts the afflicted or the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. God uses human people, people with skin on, to go and help other people who need that help. I can't end a sermon about praying, although it's not explicitly in the passage. Certainly, I don't think I can pray through this and feel what the psalmist is feeling without saying, when I see the problem, I'm going to help. I'm going to get involved. You and I should be indignant more often because there's a lot of injustice to be indignant about. You should be certain that all the injustice will one day be judged. In the meantime, I'm hoping to see a few more thugs and criminals become Christians. That's the goal of our ministry. We're evangelistic. But in the meantime, I'm going to be strengthened by prayer. I'm going to spend more time on my knees praying about the things in our world, in our culture, even in our church, because there's not a single crime statistic that doesn't affect our church. And we start loving people in the real world. We're going to be indignant. We're going to say, God, you're going to have to deal with this. 
We'll use our court systems. We'll use the attorneys as best we can. But all of that's going to be, it's going to be imperfect. But in the meantime, we'll be strengthened as we pour out our request before God. We've been reading in our DBR about courage, which, by the way, I think sometimes you miss the historical background. The people that initially read the book of Joshua, they knew how bad it was. You talk about oppression, aggravated assault. You talk about even to the worst of it, sacrificing your children to Molech, throwing your babies into the fire. I mean, this was a horrific society. And God uses Israel to come in and to change it all. Now, that was a very specific national request about warfare. And I get it. It's not about what we can do this afternoon on the way home from church. But you do realize that God, in using it as an instrument of justice, it was going to be a generational, a multi-generational period of time before they even started to see the, the promised land completely settled. There was a lot of strongholds, including Jerusalem. But in the passage we read yesterday that was recounted in today's daily Bible reading in Joshua was about the kings, the five kings. Do you remember that? The five kings that were now before Joshua. And one of them was the king of Jerusalem, the Jebusite stronghold. And he brings them out there, and they're about to execute these criminals, these horrific thugs. I mean, these, these warlords, if you will, of the ancient Canaanite world. And when he does, he says this, something that God had said to him repeatedly. God had said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be dismayed. Do not fear. He turns to those who are watching a seemingly impossible task of seeing justice really established in the land. And he's got his, his foot, his sandal, on the head of these five kings that are now about to be, receive their just execution. He turns to them, he says in Joshua 10, 25, hey, you guys, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies. That's the picture that we ought to have. The enemies of righteousness, the enemies of good, the enemies of what is, what is lawful and what is good. All of that is going to be made right. The kingdoms of the world, the violent, corrupted, criminal world, will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. We want to get as many people as we can to join us as penitent people who now live for the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who stubbornly refuse not to, we need to realize one day it'll all be fixed. Fearlessness. We've really touched on that in our psalm series. There's no place for fear in the Christian life except to fear the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, but we've made peace with him. And he now is our advocate. And he doesn't stand idly by. He's taking notes. He's going to bring us to a place of complete vindication in our societies there will be peace there'll no longer be weapons of warfare they'll be crafted it says into implements of farming proverbs makes clear that fear of man is a snare but whoever trusts in the lord that's the ticket that's the one who in his heart clearly will be safe verse 26 of proverbs 29 says many seek the face of a ruler but it's from the lord that a man gets justice You ought to go to the courts clearly to make yourself whole as best you can. But know that ultimately it's from the Lord that we get ultimate justice. And one day he will bring it in. We trust him and we become men and women of prayer in the meantime. The Lord may seem far off in our culture, but he's not. And one day he'll make that crystal clear. Let's leave today, I hope, with a new perspective. And if you haven't gotten there yet, review this passage over and over until you start to see things the way God would have us all see it. And that is that God is in charge. God will make all the wrongs right. Let's pray. God, what a great song we sing there at Christmas, reflecting those prophetic words of Isaiah, that every valley will be lifted up, every hill made low, every crooked way will be made straight, all the rough places plain. We know that one day you'll fix the world, but you are patient toward this world, wanting more 
Saul's of Tarsus becoming the Apostle Paul's, becoming the advocates of truth. So let us be evangelistic, particularly this time of year, to go out there sharing the good news of the gospel with more and more people, getting them under the teaching of the word of God. And may we be the kinds of people that never are dismayed. But we may be indignant, as Psalm 711 says. We may have an indignation like you do every single day, but we're not the judge, we're not the jury, we're not the executioner. But all we can do is entrust ourselves just like Jesus did. And it says that in 1 Peter, that Jesus, the ultimate injustice in the universe, when Christ, the the innocent one, the holy one, was crucified, he kept entrusting himself to a righteous judge, his own father. And God, I pray we would do the same today. Not saying that we're going to be passive. If you want to utilize us for comfort, for protection, for advocacy, God, we want to do all that. But in the meantime, we want to be on our knees more often, pouring our heart out to you, knowing that even those who are afflicted find great strength and comfort in that knowing that one day you will keep every single last promise that you've made to us, including those to vindicate the oppressed and to bring ultimate exacting vengeance on the oppressor. So God, remind us of those basic fundamental biblical truths this morning and let it encourage our hearts that we might be able to rejoice in hope. In Jesus' name, amen.